You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. like to be a pimp, man. A pimp. He's got to be trouble. All them different chicks calling you up at all hours. See, if it was pimps, we'd have all the pussy we wanted. Money. I'm talking about something the world's never seen before. You get today's chicks, man. You get these bitches, you open up a place called New Wave. Program the chicks to music. Hookers Incorporated. What can I do you for? Oh, how's about a taste? Hey, are you a green tea variety? Ha <laughs> ha. Our most delicious to taste such uh, exquisite delights. <laughs> Man, I think these bitches is crazy. They out there giving away that pussy for free all to hear some bullshit music. Now, what the hell does that new wave music got that black music doesn't have? You know what I think? I think these bitches be from another planet and that that new wave music is like they sex drug. Lucky for them that I am the genius that I am. I figured out a way to program bitches to music and that's the new way to catch. Hey, baby. You looking fine today, mama. I'd like to listen to some music. What kind? And dope. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Ashley West. We could really lay some pipe on the bitches. Oh, I'm sorry. That was a terrible impersonation of Jack Baker. But anyway, you get, you get the idea. That sounded just like him. I thought he was in the room. And joining us in the booth for the first time is Mr. Robin Bucci. Hello, New Wave Hookers Incorporated. What can I do you for? We are wrapping up a very mature March block of programming with a look at the raunchiest of all the films we've covered this month, Gregory Dark's New Wave Hookers. It's the story of two entrepreneurs, Jamal, played by Jack Baker, and Jimmy, played by Jamie Gillis, whose business model is to kidnap women, hypnotize them with that new wave music, and send them out to clients as sex workers. 
Just keep playing that new wave music. It drives the girls crazy. Not sure if there's a whole lot to spoil about the intricacies of the plot on this one, but we're going to do our best. So if you haven't seen New Wave Hookers or its seven sequels, ah, yeah, you have been warned. So, Robin, when was the first time that you saw New Wave Hookers and what did you think, sir? I'd known about this movie for years because amongst fans of, of vintage porn, it's pretty infamous. And despite being a big Jamie Gill's fan, you know, I, I never actually sat down and watched it until mid 2000s when I was researching a piece for my, my magazine and book series called Cinema Sewer. And that was for a piece about Jack Baker, who is his Jamie Gillis's co-star. And what did you think of the film? I liked it. I had seen a couple of Gregory Dark's other films before that, uh, but they were shot in video ones. So I was like, oh, this is actually shot on film. So it was, it was, you know, a step up and, and, uh, I, I've, I've always liked his, his movies. So. And Ashley, how about yourself? I mean, I'm feeling bad already because uh, I think I'm the old guy on this call. I saw it when it came out in 1985, would you believe? So. It was a window display. I was living in France at the time, and there was a window display solely dedicated to this new American phenomenon that was new wave hookers. What struck me, not being knowledgeable about porn at that time, was just how different it looked, just from the box covers it looked. You know, I I was used to sort of seeing porn posters that, with all due respect, look like they featured friends of your parents, you know, hot friends of your parents, but still friends of your parents. Suddenly, the girls on the box covers looked like the girls you saw in the clubs or you, you, you saw, um, you know, in your place of work. And it, it, was, uh, it was a revelation. So I rented the, the tape. It lived up to what the, the, the packaging was because it was a different kind of porn film. It was, in effect, a turning point in the industry. It wasn't like too many films that had appeared before then. The only visual precedence had been movies like perhaps Cafe Flesh or, or Night Dreams. But this was, this was an entirely new proposition. In fact, if I can just go on, I worked on HBO's The Deuce, and they were looking for a, a movie that symbolized the changing in guard from the old school pornography shot on, uh, shot on film to a new vision of porn. And so we actually captured that in one of the episodes where... New Wave Hookers is given an industry showing and people come out of it scratching their heads. You know, some people are saying this is porn mixed with MTV, music videos. And some people come out saying, you know, this is terrible. It makes no sense. The lead character who had come out of the 1970s industry of filmmaking is unimpressed. Um, She calls it a bunch of fuck scenes set to music. Uh, But that was kind of emblematic, I think, of what was going on in the industry, there was a lot of people still to this day. I remember speaking to Bill Margold a few years ago. He hated the film, always did. Um, and there's several people who who really view it as being the beginning of the end of, of a serious porn industry. Other people think it was the, you know, the start of bringing it into the 21st century. It's interesting. When we kicked off this month together, uh, we talked about members within Miss Aggie, and I had brought up the idea like, oh, what if this was just a bunch of loops that were thrown together and tied together with a plot? And, well, here we are. We're back at the end here, 13 years after that one, and we're just like, okay, well, this basically is a bunch of loops thrown together with a little bit of a plot in between. I was joking with my wife before I came downstairs to record saying, I don't think we're going to be talking about the plot of this movie too much because there just isn't that much there. It's not plot driven, but it is, it is character driven. Like it, it, the, the characters have a lot of charisma and that's kind of what you're watching for. 
Damn straight. When I first saw this one, I probably rented this on video. I was aware, and we'll definitely talk about the whole Tracy Lord situation, but I was aware of that because that was happening, what was that, 86, all of that stuff was going on? Yeah, it was July 86 that the news broke. So that's just when I'm about to go into high school. So I think I was probably 16, 18 years old, maybe 17 when I first saw this. And already by that time, I had known just a little bit about porn and had a a friend who knew a little bit more. And he was like, oh, yeah, if you want to see really nasty shit, you need to see stuff by the Dark Brothers. And it was, you know, let me tell you about white chicks. Let me tell you about black chicks, the follow up, black throat and then new wave hookers and new wave hookers was like nothing I had ever seen before. And this kind of shaped my perception of porn for a long time. We've talked other times on this month about, you know, oh, yeah, well, sex, adult films are just a series of sex scenes with very little plot. I mean, I'm glad that I have found since that that is not the case. But this was the film that really shaped my perception of what adult films were and what it, obviously to your point, Ashley, this is where we we're going in the industry. And that's what I was seeing many times after this is just okay, here's a excuse for sex. We're going to have sex. And so much of the plot of this film is the excuse for sex. But yeah, to your point, Robin, the characters are super likable. And I just, I mean, my God, Jamie Gillis and Jack Baker and their interactions, and of course, Dog in there as well, that it mixes that surrealism with the sex. And I think that's why I also glommed onto things like uh, Cafe Flesh and Night Dreams and just those Stephen Sadine films where, you know, he was directing as a, or uh, writing and doing the uh, set decoration. And then I had forgotten that he actually was the production designer behind this film as well, which really makes a lot of sense. The two characters you talk about, the Jamie Gillis and Jack Baker, in some ways mirror the, the Dark Brothers themselves, Walter and Greg, not real brothers, it should be pointed out. It was almost performance art for them. They decided that they wanted to shake up the industry and declared that porn is dead. They were proud of that and they wanted to be part of you know the next generation. What they were keen to do was portray these these pimp characters. They would turn up to premieres wearing uh, African-American clothes. Iceberg Slim was, was an inspiration. They flipped the bird to the camera. And you know, no one had seen this before. Adult filmmakers up until then had been notoriously, even painfully keen to get good publicity. Sure, they were pornographers, but directors like Anthony Spinelli or Chuck Vincent or Jerry Damiano, nevertheless, still tried hard not to offend. They tried to be an alternative Hollywood and make films that would look like regular movies if you just took out the bump and grind. But the Dark Brothers were different. They said, we're making these films. That makes us the stars. That makes the directors the people you want to see. So they would turn up proclaiming that they were the stars here. So New Wave Focus wasn't the first of their films, but once they'd established these um, these characters, uh, Greg told me that they wanted to actually put their characters up on the screen. And so in some ways, Jamie and Jack represent Walter and Greg themselves. One of the characters, the Jack Baker character, that Jack Baker I had grown up seeing him on television. And so to see him in this role, I was like, what the fuck is going on? This is sticks from happy days. Why is he in this movie? It was so bizarre. Which one of you is sticks? <laughs> I'm uh, Bill Downey Jr. Man. They call me sticks. I'm Kathleen's aunt. Look out. Who do you think you are 
about checking out my niece, Kathleen? Oh, well, no offense, nice lady, but when you buy a car, you check under the hood first. <laughs> he was Sticks, yeah, on, on Happy Days. He was he was Bubbles on, uh, on Sunrise uh, Space is, is the Place. Uh, he was CC on um, ABC Saturday Morning Live Action Series, uh, The Croft Super Show. Uh, yeah, and then and then he's also the guy, New Wave Hookers, that gets his cock sucked by uh, Chris Tara Barrington. So, <laughs> and it's funny because Jack is. Um, we all hear about these stories about the Ron Jeremys and the the Linda Lovelaces and the the, the John Holmes and Barnett's history, but guys like Jack Baker's story don't get. He didn't have the the hardest or biggest dick, uh, but uh, his stories of those kind of guys I find the most fascinating. Yeah, he's he's a black guy, very funny, talented. Um, really excelled at acting and especially the comedy aspects, very funny line delivery, which gave him a way to stand out in, in adult movies in particular, I found because it was a niche that not so many other guys were known for it. I mean, there's, there's Bobby Astor and Ron Jeremy, but I, I think he was the funniest guy in eighties porn, Jack Baker. He wasn't you know known for his, his fucking prowess. He, Bill Margold said, you know, said that he, he didn't, uh, it was actually the guy who, who discovered him and gave him his, his first role. He, he always said, oh, yeah, he couldn't really do it with his dick. I mean, even like even in New Wave Hookers, he spends a lot of his time just standing off to the side, kind of jacking his 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 flaccid wiener. But I digress. But, <laughs> but, but you know, with Jack in, in a production, you know, it was going to be entertaining and watchable, especially actually if it was a, a Dark Brothers film, because they really knew how to use Baker's talents. His work in those early films of the Dark Brothers is really impressive to me. I don't know. It's it's very like street level, lots of sass and slang and being outrageous, which I think really suited Baker's talents. The whole chucking and jiving that he had really, you know, honed to per- perfection in films like um, Kentucky Fried Movie. They gave him his best dialogues and characters that really played into what um, he could do. And, you know, it's really some of his best work as an actor, porn or not, that he did with the Dark Brothers. He himself would say, actually, that he felt vindicated by... Um, the accolades that he got for this stuff, because I'm sure you know it must have felt like a bit of a of a defeat, you know, going from mainstream Hollywood to to doing triple X films. But you know, he won he won awards at the porn version of the Oscars, so he certainly wasn't getting that kind of love from uh, Hollywood. <laughs> hey, Robin, did you know what made him jump into porn in the first place? Was it just money? I talked with his daughter um, after I did the piece for him in Sinmasur, and she said something about there was a. A union strike. I'm not sure which who who went on strike. If it was the writers, but apparently he crossed a picket line and he pissed off somebody. Somebody involved in the industry, you know, some suits, and so they said they they blacklisted him, is what she said. He ended up not being able to get work, um, you know, in television, and he he had been doing you know like little bit parts on various shows. Because he made a whole mess of porn films. I mean, it was uh, when I went back and looked at it, I, I, I'd forgotten just how many he made. He was all over them. Well, and it's like such a clear delineation, too. It's like Horror in the Wax Museum in 83. He's not even credited or tagged the assassination game in 82. And then it's like, boom, stiff competition. Marilyn Chambers' Private Fantasies is just like from 84 on out. It's like, look out, Jack. He is now in porn. I When I talked to Ginger Lynn, in 2014 and she's she's also in this movie uh new wave hookers and she said that she was actually she, the only scene she ever did with with jack baker and was in this movie and she actually felt pretty intimidated by him just because she thought he was so cool and so together and like you know like a real actor so it, he had a little bit of that um you know he kind of brought that to to these productions 
I just remembered the name of the film that Margold um, first cast him in was um, was Hot Chocolate, which was the year before this one, uh, 80, I think 84. Margold was actually telling me that Baker was part of what he called the the hole in the wall gang, which was a group of destitute or just on the verge of being homeless porn people that lived with this old World War II vet named um, Sam Menning on the, the second floor of a building um, on Hollywood Boulevard, which is now right next door to where they shoot Jimmy Kimmel show and right near the ground is Chinese uh, theater in Hollywood. But, you know, back in the eighties, it was just like, you know, the neighborhood was very different <laughs> and a bunch of, apparently a bunch of people lived in there with this old guy, uh, including Misty Dawn and um, Christine DeShafer. There was a photographer named Jack Green and apparently just like a Noah's Ark of animal animals in there as well. And they're all running a wild through the, through the building. Cause this, this guy had so, him and so many pets. I can vouch for that. I actually knew Sam pretty well before he oh, died. Really? Yeah. Uh, Sam actually shot uh, Betty page back in the fifties um, and then moved uh, back in New York and then was one of the first loop shooters. He shot Linda Lovelace um, and uh, Tina Russell and you know, all the really uh, Jamie, all the really early porn guys. And this, jump ahead to just before he died he was actually a regular i say this a regular in the background of the tv sitcom my name is earl so fascinating guy and yeah he did actually tell me about uh, jack baker as well so i have a little bit of uh, intel on that so what you're saying is completely true it, it, a fascinating house it must have been in those days oh man yeah it'd be a fly on the wall in that place <laughs> but yeah it was also it was during the time that he was living there that an infamous incident where jack baker got um, assaulted with a baseball bat and he was smashed really hard in the head. And actually as a result, he suffered from epileptic seizures for the rest of his life. And nobody I've, t- I've talked to really seems to be able to like, really give me like a concrete answer on like what happened in this, but there's rumors um, from a couple of people that maybe Eddie Nash was involved. And he was the gangster that Eric Bogosian plays in the movie Wonderland, which as you might remember is all about the murders that um, John Holmes was involved in. But everybody, I don't know, everybody seems to have like a conflicted story about what this was about. But and, and Jack Baker himself rarely spoke about it. If there was a baseball bat in someone's face involved, it probably was him. Yeah. In, yeah. in L.A. at that time, sadly. Scary guy. Yeah. Yeah. I actually spoke to him as well before he before he passed. Um, Eddie Nash, really? Yeah. He, he died. What was it? Is it four or five years ago now? I was kind of interested because he owned so many of the nightclubs uh, in, in L.A., including one or two theaters as well, apart from obviously being interested in the whole John Holmes angle. Um, he, we did a little bit of an interview before he passed, um, which was which was a shame because I'd like to have done much more with him. But yeah, interesting guy. I didn't know his connection to uh, to Jack Baker, possibly. New Wave Hookers is is such a, a different vision, but I think we have to look at Greg Dark's background a little bit just to understand where that came from. Because it, despite the fact that there were two Dark brothers, one was strictly commercial, and that was uh, Walter, and one was strictly creative, and that was Greg. You know, Greg had a crazy background. His mother was a, a Las Vegas stripper. Uh, his father was into Alistair Crowley and, and that kind of literature. He, as a result, got into his, the first books he says he remembers reading were Marquis de Sade, Cocteau, and Bataille, and so on. Became obsessed with death and sex. Perhaps understandably, he ended up in psychology analysis uh, as, a, as a teen, and you know, got hooked on opium, hash, heroin from, from an early age. 
which led him to you know periods of of, of depression. Um, but when he discovered film, he, he he was immediately drawn to surrealists like Bunuel um, and loved El Topo, loved Antonioni and Goddard as well. So he he developed this this sort of warped artistic sense from quite an early age, and actually went to Stanford College for uh, for fine arts. Uh, which is difficult to get into, but he managed to get into there and had several shows uh, as an artist in New York before deciding to return to college uh, and went to NYU film school um, where he was sort of more or less thrown out because they didn't get his surreal conceptual art approach. And that's really how he ended up in the film industry working for NBC. The interesting way that he got connected to the adult film industry is that he made a documentary, which ended up being called Fallen Angels uh, centered around Jim South and Jim South's world modeling agency, which was the main clearing business for porn talents at the time. And, and, and Greg spent a lot of time uh, hanging out with uh, with filmmakers, uh, hanging out on sets, and concluding that he could make better films um, than, than the most of the people that he saw. Literally, he, he um, was, was at home one day, and, and Walter uh, Dark, who was uh, actually he he'd started, he formed VCA, which is one of the largest companies. You know, turned up and said, "Listen, you got two options. Do you want to continue living in a shitty apartment you know, with nobody appreciating your talent, or do you want to try and put it to some good use and make some films, which in some way reflect this Jungian nihilistic vision that you've got, concept of the dark side or the shadow side of, of the personality?" And that's really what what inspired the, the Dark Brothers to form this this um, this partnership, which resulted in in films. Which, to be honest, uh, most of them are a lot weirder than New Wave Hookers. So if you start with new wave hookers that's a maybe a good entry because they do get uh, a lot stranger i always think of the scene with sahara an african-american actress who is having sex with men dressed up in clan outfits whilst black gospel music is playing uh, it was a very uh charged film set uh, and and greg liked the racial aspect he was good friends with with jack baker actually and um so it's no surprise that the two characters have this sort of african-american pimp type uh, type feel to them so that's a little bit of the background which might explain some of the the strangeness that appears in the movie the whole thing with gregory dark being i mean he was so well known from that in that era for being doing this kind of polarizing and transgressive material you know porn that was kind of famously edgy for the time a lot was made of that then and, and now too but you know in a lot of ways despite dealing with these kind of outwardly racist or even at the very least racial stereotypes and it was meant to make the audience kind of like go like whoa you know <laughs> but i don't really know that the triple x that he was doing in the 80s comes close to what would come after in terms of like offensiveness because it was still it was still pretend you know, like it was still actors, like for instance, like what um, Max Hardcore and, you know, or Rocco Sofredi or the guys, you know, facialabuse.com or hundreds of other porn content providers have done since then. And I think that's because nothing, nothing felt like consent wasn't involved on, on dark sets. Like they, the scenes weren't particularly rapey i mean if there was a rape scene it was like kind of very comic booky and silly if you know what i mean like he wasn't deliberately trying to get his female performers to like break down and you know sob for real in a scene he wasn't trying to destroy anybody's soul you know i think he was just very aware that taboos in particular racial taboos which he was really drawn to are like a fast track to like titillation for americans who you know quite frankly have you know a lot of baggage about that and um, so it kind of comes like, a, oh, we're doing something bad, taboo, and that stuff that's, that's going to make something feel really dirty. 
And I think the thing with Dark was that he was interested not only in turning the audience on, but making them feel really uncomfortable about being turned on. So he was like pressing these kind of these buttons to get that reaction. And I think it worked really well, um, especially when you're like you read anti-porn literature from that era because it's filled with scandalized writers who seem convinced that, you know, we're never going to see anything this bad as we as new wave hookers or these other, you know, I mean, I remember reading one quote about him in Esquire magazine of all places that said, let's, I have it quoted here. Um, he was dedicated to the task of making human sexual Congress look inherently unwholesome. Well, you said comic books and that really does fit with this. I mean, Jack Baker in his orange jumpsuit with his orange sunglasses. I think once the dream begins, once we have this framing device start, I don't remember him ever really taking his sunglasses off. No. And yeah. maybe it might be the same thing for Jamie Gillis too, who in his dream, it's kind of confusing as far as is he supposed to be Japanese or Chinese? Cause it thinks he's doing a Japanese accent, but then he talks about sushi and Chinese a lot. And I'm just like, okay, it's just, it's Asian. I think it's supposed to be Asian. I saw someone, he looked. Yeah, that's more of the racial stuff, right? Like he's really tapping into like, you know, like a really obnoxiously ching chang chong kind of like Asian stereotype. And you're like, what what is this? Like and wearing an anarchy t-shirt. And then yeah, Jack Baker, all of his lines, I mean, it's like bitches this, bitches that. It's all of this stuff where it's just like Man, and yeah, N-words being dropped all over the place, and it's like, it is, they are just playing racial stereotypes to the hilt, and this whole thing of like, yeah, we're going to get these bitches, and we're going to play new wave music for them, and they're just going to be doing whatever the hell we want, and we've got them in the back, and I love once we finally go in the back, and we see the merry-go-round that we've got them on, <laughs> and I love this device, too, and that there are several devices where you've got, like, the breasts over the headphones, or the big dildos coming out of the headphones. What is about that? I couldn't, I still can't figure that one out. I love it. And yeah, you put that new wave music on and these girls, they just turn them right out. I mean, it is, it, it honestly could be seen as very offensive, but I found it fucking hilarious. And just, yeah, their back and forth is amazing. Just what the fuck? This whole thing where they've got, uh, phones in the office, but they don't have ringers because they have a man that is in the office that they call dog and dog will just start to shout ring whenever the phones are about to ring. Cause he's got the gift of second sight. I kind of wondered if he's reacting to the, cause there's a red light that goes off too. Is he reacting to the, to the red light and then going ring or is the red light going off because he's saying ring? I can't figure it out. And does he know which phone it is? Because they both have phones on there. So many questions. <laughs> <laughs> I actually watched uh, New Way Focus with Jamie towards the end of his oh, life. Um, that he, must have been an experience. <laughs> that was fantastic. He said he'd never seen it in its entirety, and he was hugely entertained by the whole thing. Uh, he laughed all the way through it. Uh, he even laughed at his own Chinese Japanese-Asian accent, which uh, <laughs> was was rather disconcerting. He, you know, at the end, he said he felt it was in the tradition of the theater of the absurd which he'd worked in when he he was a, a thespian back in the 1960s he felt that there was a there was a tradition there that he could he could link into at the time he felt it was as we've said just a selection of loops uh, but when he actually saw it come together and this was possibly sort of 20 25 years afterwards he, he admitted that he was a lot more impressed at what uh, greg dark had actually what his intentions were 
you know, Greg always said that he never intended to to turn anybody on with his movies, but I think Robin hit the nail on the head. I think he did. You can't not do that in a porn film, but I think he wanted to make people uncomfortable with, with what they were being turned on by. Greg always yeah. just said, I just wanted to create a strange, crazy, dirty film. The truth is, is a lot more interesting than that. I love these sets that they're on because they've got the main set, which is the two desks that are facing each other. Kind of reminds me of like an old screwball comedy kind of thing with these two guys just going back and forth across the room with each other. And then you get to, uh, I think it might be the second sex scene. Cause I think the first sex scene takes place in the office when Desiree Lane comes in and they put that new wave music on for, her and she's just, captivated they end up sending over two girls to peter north who's wearing a fez and speaking in fake arabic at first i thought that it was supposed to be outdoors just with uh i thought it was sand but then it's actually rugs that he's on you mentioned music videos and that's what these sets remind me of a lot are music videos and that they just kind of go off into nowhere. It feels like they're just in a limbo state. So many, I I think almost every single set feels like it's in a limbo place rather than any sort of attempt to ground it in reality, which I really appreciate. Yeah. It's very stylized. I guess it's worth also worth mentioning that when Gregory dark finished his career in porn, he went on to, to be a, a music video guy. Like that was his, I guess, you know, it makes you kind of wonder, like, did he, was it because of the porn kind of being known as a, as a music video pornographer that he, that he made that, um, that leap? Um, cause you know, it's, it's, it's strange. Like when I think about what a lot of the other adult films that were from that era, they were using a lot of canned music, you know, like the bucka bucka boy, you know, and he's using, um, original music so that, that, that right there gave it, you know, much more kind of credence. But when he went on to do these other music videos, a lot of them were for like wholesome, I don't know, virginal pop stars of the era, like Mandy Moore and Britney Spears back before she kind of embraced more of a sluttier persona and Nick Carter's little sister, Leslie. I mean, it must have, I guess it kind of seems like a different line of work and totally unlike porn. But, you know, the more I think about it, how different really is the sexualization and visual fetishization of of young women in the music industry really, you know, all that different from what Dark was doing earlier. I think they're fairly closely related. I mean, one's just more culturally acceptable commodification of women and and one isn't. I found that his music videos for Mandy Moore and Britney Spears, where the artist was at the time, squeaky clean, actually became a fetish in itself, which made it even more subversive. And, you know, the idea that this, this guy was behind those, those videos actually had, gave them a real edge that wasn't present in, you know, in, in many videos at the time. Ashley, do you know if the stars that he worked with when he was doing music videos were even like aware of his history in porn? Because I don't know if it was that easy to look up someone's past back then, right? Like, no social media. And like, did, did their people vet him properly? Like, Because <laughs> you think it would be like, it would, be, it would have been a scandal if this had come out. It's interesting how he got in because he, he was friends with the, the LA rock band, uh, the Melvins. And they were fans of his. And they asked him to direct a video. And that video was, was a big hit, uh, which brought him an agent. And the agent put him in touch with John Phillips from uh, the Mamas and Papas. At the time, John was managing a reggae and ska band called Sublime from, from Long Beach in California. And that whole band were huge fans of Greg Dark's porn. So they hired him precisely for that reason. Um, and he made a video, I think it was called Wrong Way. Uh, it actually featured Bijou Phillips, which was John Phillips' daughter. 
And he used the porn actor in the video. So the, the worlds were completely crossing over at this stage. You know, he was using porn. He was trading off his porn name. And that song for, for Sublime blew up on MTV. The, the video was a huge hit. So he got signed up by, by FM Rocks, which was a huge company at the time. They signed him up, gave him all of his work. And everybody at FM Rocks knew about um, about his background, and nobody, you know, had had any um, you know any any qualms about it, any problems about it. The only issue that Greg said he had was that his ideas were still lodged in the porn world, and so he had to have a good producer who would rein him in all the time. He mentioned one video which actually had a man tied up with a ball gag in, in one of the videos. I think it was Mandy Moore or something, and the producer said, no, 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 this is, this is not the look we're going for. So this is not something he was trying to hide. You know, we hear so many stories of people trying to hide their past when they, when they move into the mainstream. Not the case with Greg. People were aware. Uh, they, didn't, they tried not to emphasize it, especially when he was working with squeaky clean artists. One of the biggest ones he had was a, a so-called graduation um, from Vitamin C, which in the summer of 2000 was like the number one song on MTV. And he, he, did, he did the video for that. And like I say, he, he never hit it. I pressed him on this whenever I, I spoke to him uh, about how he was able to get away with it. And he almost said that by not hiding it, by being open about it, and, and by, by trading off of, of that book of work as something that was, that was noteworthy, he had never run into difficulties. So I don't know how, how, how true that was, but he was very different from, from the other directors who whenever they, or even actors who whenever they were trying to get mainstream jobs, they would completely hide it away. Yeah, it's so weird that he always kept that nom de porn throughout everything. And it wasn't like, okay, when I start to direct these music videos, I go from Greg Dark to Greg Brown or something and just say like, yes, I am this other person now and try to bury it. It feels like he made no bones about it, which was just fascinating because so many times it's like, no, I've got the one name for this. I've got the one name for that, or maybe even two or three names. There is a missing step between the porn and the music videos, and that was that's quite notable, which was that he made a series, about 20 film noir, erotic thriller-type films. Uh, the first was called Carnal Crimes. This was when he saw a gap, really, in the U.S. film market, which he he, he saw from observing what was going on in, in European films, which were which were pioneering the, these kind of semi-erotic softcore films, but transposing them onto a film noir type 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 structure so he and and walter re did recreate themselves and did change their names actually uh, for for that for those films and those were hugely successful the budgets went from being 50 60 000 maybe for for one of the porn films to anything between half a million and a million for these these erotic films so he was working on a different scale there so that was the kind of step up that enabled him to work with bigger budgets and with with, with even more talented crews you know he worked he, he wants listed out all the people he'd worked with on these erotic thrillers that eventually went on to win Academy Awards. People like Wally Pfister, for example, who uh, I think won an Academy Award. He's always been good at, at, at leveraging the best talent around him. But once again, yes, he used a different name, but it wasn't as if it was an open secret. It wasn't as if uh, he was afraid of it. You know, contrast that with, with Radley Metzger, who right up until Radley's passing in, in this century was absolutely terrified that Henry Paris and, and Radley Metzger would be completely conflated in some people's minds, which was, you know, a, a little bit delusional. 
That's right. I've forgotten about, what was it? Alexander Gregory yes. Polite. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's his, uh, subco name. And then he had, um, well, he, he did Greg Brown for a little bit and then John Valentine, I think, for just a little yes. bit too. So yeah, I, I very much misspoke where it was, uh, but that he was doing the videos under the Greg Dark name and not one of these even Hippolyte type names. I, I found very admirable that he wasn't trying to, to hide it. Like you said, it was an open secret. We've talked a lot about music videos, and of course, so much of this movie just lives and dies by its music. The original opening, so not the opening that you're going to see when you, you know, buy this now on DVD. I don't think it's available on Blu-ray, which is unfortunate, but the opening that's currently there, it mixes some of the actresses. There's a lot of smoke. There's a lot of just kind of, uh, you know, the actress is looking at you and then also mixes in some of the shots from the film. But the original was much more, it was very music video and it was very much more the actresses on display, mostly masturbating. Um, there's two actresses at one point and they're masturbating each other. But it's great. This whole, like the smoke, the atmosphere, the music. I mean, this whole, you know, it's no joke that this new wave music turns these girls on because the new new wave music goes through the entire thing. And I love both the plugs with what they're doing and then the band or whoever's going under the name, the sockets. There's some great, great music here, especially I want to say it's the, uh, the scene with ginger where the music gets really kind of dark. haha. but it's almost like an early industrial type of thing. And I really appreciate where the music's going in that scene. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually decent. Like it's a decent score. <laughs> I love the music. Yeah. I must admit that that opening song is, uh, it's one of my favorite songs full stop, not just, uh, related to a, to a, a, a film. It's really great. The scene you refer to with, with Ginger, I asked Greg once what his favorite scene was that he directed. And the, his, the, his first answer was, the ginger double penetration scene in uh, New Wave Hookers. And I said, oh, you know, why? What what made that good? And he said the music. Um, obviously, Ginger was great. She had this ingenue character. Obviously, the, the subject of their sexual activity was was uh, provocative. But he put it down to the music and the editing as well. And I think we have to give a lot of credit to the music because I think, well, it's Greg did a great job. That marriage of, of Greg's style and the music is, is what really makes it for me. The, the music is, is the, is the, uh, the secret source. What I really like, even though Ginger is allegedly, you know, being mind controlled by new wave music, that she comes in and she's just so in control. We've got Steve Powers, who is also dog, but he's doubling as one of the nerds. We've got another man in there who's also playing a nerd. And we've got her coming in and just taking charge. That whole, as soon as she comes in and tells the one guy to lick her ankle, I'm just like, she is fully in charge here. Even when she's getting double penetrated, it's like she's doing this because she wants it. And she's the one who calls all the shots. She looks more like she's fucking them. Yeah. Even when she's being double, double penetrated. I have so much affection for Ginger Lynn. Like she was in the second porno I ever saw when I was a you know a teenager. So I just have like, she's like in my lizard brain, you know, when I think of like, you know, sexual attractiveness, I think of like Ginger Lynn. <laughs> and, I, and I was a kind of a, 
in 2016, I, I was tabling at a convention in um, London, Ontario called Shockstock. And um, she was a special guest and we ended up, I was sitting basically tabling right next to her for, for, for an entire weekend. So I had her like, we just basically just, just, you know, I was like chatting with her for literally for like, you know, 16 hours. Right? <laughs> so it was just great. And then, and then drinking in the, in the, the convention bar, you know, at, you know, in the evenings as well. So it was just like, yeah, dream come true for, for uh teenage Robin. <laughs> <laughs> and Ginger actually names it as one of her favorite scenes of all time as well. I was interested when I, when I asked Greg, you know, how did you pick, actors or actresses for your movies, especially new wave hookers. He, he said, typically I'd like to choose them on the basis of no inhibitions. That was the, the, the characteristic that he looked for. Sure. They had to be good looking and so on, but he really wanted people who didn't have the inhibitions so he could mold them uh, within the movie. And I thought that was interesting. He certainly chose good actors in this movie. When I love her very much like punk look that she's got and just all of the girls, I mean, even, you know, the guys, uh, nerds notwithstanding or, or quote unquote, Arabs notwithstanding. <laughs> so many of the people, you know, Jack and Jamie and then all of the women have this very punk aesthetic going on. There's so many like belts and dog collars and all these things. And she's got her hair all, you know, stood up and everything and just the makeup and all that. I just, I love that it's all playing again with that as- aesthetic. This movie is so strange to me because I, I think that it's set in New York because I'm constantly hearing the horns outside of the office, you know, laid over the soundtrack. But then there's mention of the valley and just it has a real L.A. feel to me for whatever reason, maybe because of the punk scene. I assumed it was set in L.A. because at the end, he's Jamie Gillis is driving in a car and I just assumed that was like Sunset Boulevard or somewhere. It didn't really look like New York to me. Yeah. Yeah, once he gets out of the office and I'm just like, okay, yeah, for sure this is LA. When, when the one girl, I think Desiree comes in and is like, oh, I read you about this in the Valley news or whatever. I was like, oh, okay, this must be LA. Oh, does she say that? Oh, okay. Everybody seems to be hot and sweaty as well. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Jamie, which gives it a great look. Jack Baker in the final orgyish scene when he's over there whacking it, he's just so sweaty. He's, oh my he's god, dripping. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I'm like, and he's not even fucking anybody. Like, why is he so wet? <laughs> the guy who did the makeup, Jim Bridges, actually had a stellar career working with Jackie Onassis, Angela Lansbury, even was Mick Jagger's personal makeup guy on tour before he went on stage. He did did makeup in a, in a lot of porn movies, but uh, he must have been uh, pulling his hair out over over the. Uh, the sweat on on the on these scenes. So, if people aren't going to watch this movie, we should probably tell them though about in between these sex scenes. We go back to the office every single time. We go back to the office with Jack and Jamie with these two characters, and it's basically it's almost like skits. They're talking to each other and they're just kind of pontificating upon the world. Uh, there's this whole thing about you know how is it that these bitches are giving it away for free and we should really be charging. And then there's uh, this whole thing about sushi and at one point each almost every single one of them starts off with a phone call and uh one of them is great it's uh jack baker talking about how they have no pinhead bitches and he wanted to a uh, humpback bitch apparently <laughs> <laughs> i know a woman who has midget bitches and this brings us into my most favorite part of this entire movie forget the sex scene i want to talk about borneo and the walking disembodied dicks let me tell you about something that's really fine 
Down in Borneo, they got this place where these dicks walk around. Disembody. <laughs> yeah, they got these dicks running around and they be chasing bitches and they got these dick catchers that run after them. They catch them, they take them out, they train them and then sell them to these high class chicks for toys. Oh. Yeah. Now, what would you do if you was walking along the road and you and your old lady was attacked by disembodied dick? <laughs> I would spit at a nasty thing. I was waiting for them to cut to like Borneo or something like but they never they <laughs> Oh, it's so good. And just that whole what would you do if you were attacked by a disembodied dick? <laughs> I would spit at it. <laughs> of course, like you would. <laughs> I wonder if that was like an improvisation from from Jack Baker. Like, how scripted was that scene? Because it just seems so ridiculous. Page uh, seventy five here. Okay, this is the scene. <laughs> All right, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, I want you to really think about think about what you would do if you saw a disembodied dick. What would you do with that? <laughs> <laughs> in the following scene, in the in the original version, it was the Tracy Lord scene, and. And um, what ends up happening is there's a phone call and it is, you want a devil? Yeah, she'd be hot as hell. And so they send in this. I mean, it almost works that this got cut out of the film because it really doesn't fit in with the rest of the movie. This whole thing about new wave music and just I was talking about how the the girls look and it they almost have like a post-apocalyptic look going on so many of them have ripped up t-shirts and all this and then you cut to the scene and it's Tracy Lord's going to this guy's place she's dressed as a devil and he's dressed as an angel and they end up having you know pretty good sex scene but it's just like again it, it doesn't feel like it fits with the rest of the movie so at the end of the day, and we'll talk more about the controversy and stuff later, but at the end of the day, it almost works that it gets cut out because it really doesn't fit with the aesthetic of the rest of the movie. Is she wearing the outfit that you see on the, that she's wearing on the poster for the movie? No, no, she is dressed. She's got devil horns and she's got this whole red thing going on. It's not that kind of torn up t-shirt that you see on the poster. Cause I've never seen the old, I've only, you know, I saw the movie later, so I only ever saw the cut version. So. Part of the problem, they had Tracy Lords to deal with, and she'd been 1980, September 1984 penthouse centerfold. I mean, actually, that's her billing at the beginning of the movie. Um, now, this was the notorious issue with, with Miss America, uh, the Vanessa Williams one. Um, Vanessa Williams being the first African-American woman to receive the Miss America title. An issue so popular that my folks actually owned that issue. Oh, my. And I had no idea that Tracy was in that. I was more into like... Oh my God, this Miss America. And it was what her with George Burns on the cover. That's the one. That right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I saw that. I saw a lot of that issue. Let's just put it that way. I mean, it was the, the, the most widely sold and seen, uh, issue that there ever was uh, of Penthouse. And that was because of Vanessa Williams. It so happens to have had Tracy in, which kind of gave Tracy quite a lot of notoriety given that she was. Obviously, people were able to advertise the fact that uh, she was in that because a lot of people had seen her in that. She was the, the the centerfold in that issue. Being lumbered with 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 Tracy in some ways was maybe a, a curse or maybe a blessing, which, whichever way you want to see it. Um, the the last scene is at odds, I think, with the rest of the movie. It's 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 the other 
scenes are all so unique uh, and and so different and so unusual and so on. Apart from the fact that Tracy is the devil and has horns and so on, which I suppose is is fairly unique, it is is a much more conventional um, sex scene to end the uh, the film with. I mean, I saw it with her in the original, so I'm sort of attached to that version. But I understand now that you pointed out it doesn't it doesn't really fit in thematically or even stylistically with the rest of the movie. Yeah, it doesn't feel like anything's missing, you know, when I watch the the cut version. It feels like a complete film. It doesn't like sometimes when there's a cut scene, you're like, oh, something's really like I feel like something is missing here. <laughs> yeah, if anything suffers from it, I think it's that opening that I was talking about because you don't see Tracy. I think she's one of the first girls that you see in the opening, and then it moves, you know, subsequently to each other girl, and you get the the music and the credits coming up, you know, in between those things. But yeah, that's, that's really, it, it doesn't feel like it's missing something, um, otherwise, because once we go from that, we go to fade out, fade in. And that's what this movie is rife with is fade out, fade in. So fade out, fade in. And then, oh, we realize we left all them. And I keep saying the B word. And I really shouldn't be doing that, but it's like, we uh, we left them girls uh in the reconditioning for two days they horny as hell so they have to go back and you know take care of of these poor girls who have been stuck on a merry-go-round with (laughs) and at first i thought they were spinning upside down and then i realized oh they're on a merry-go-round okay so it becomes like this lazy susan for fucking which is kind of interesting (laughs) (laughs) that's exactly what it is yeah (laughs) and if any scene goes on for too long for me anyway it's this one but i guess it's because we have to have we've got the three girls and we've got jamie and and uh jack taking care of them and dog taking care of uh, uh one of the girls and then eventually the vice cops come in and i guess uh, the Jamie character used to work for the vice cops because he says, don't you recognize me? I used to work in the office. I mean, fuck it. Don't you recognize me? I used to work in your fucking office. And now I'm rich. I'm satisfied. And I'm Chinese, you asshole. Talk about surreal. Oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> this with the cops and everything. And then you have poor Jack Baker over in the corner just doing his thing. And it just it goes on for a long time to the point where the record ends, basically. And then there's a long time with no music. And then the industrial music comes back up. And I'm just like, wow. And then we finally we you know fade out, fade in. And we see, oh, this has all been a dream. And I love that we have this whole, you know, you're talking about surrealism. I love that it is a shared dream between these two characters and it really freaks oh, yeah. the character out. They're really freaked out. Yeah. Then he goes out driving down the streets and he starts having flashes, having memories of what's going on. And then he actually runs into one of the girls that was one of the hookers and um, he ends up what is it he he runs out of the car he tries to pick up the girls you know you want to want to date oh do you want to beat my tits because that's what he was doing in the previous scene he chases her off screen and then the credits roll and we have this amazing new wave makes me hot song oh yeah that's my that's my favorite song (laughs) the whole whole movie is just rife with good tunes yeah, it really works because of that. 
Yeah, I'd love too that the it's that whole mix of what was real, what's not. You know, the, is the dream really happening? Because apparently this girl either dreamed it too or she actually experienced it. And I know I'm like, you know, layering on too many levels to this thing, but I, I know that it's it's there and it's supposed to be there. And I really that's the thing I keep saying is I appreciate the thought that went into this stuff, and I do appreciate that. This is kind of fucked up. And, and you sh- saying, Ashley, that there are even weirder films from Greg Dark, that this is just kind of a good starter. Cause I don't remember the white chicks, black chicks, black throat films that well, but I would love to see more of his stuff and more bizarro things that he would do. You know, there's actually two parts to his career. This 80s part that we're talking about mainly today was punctuated by the softcore erotic thrillers that we spoke about as well. Actually, in 1995, he actually came back into the industry uh, and, and worked for, I think it was sort of three or four years in the tail end of the 90s. Now, the business by then had kind of moved towards his original porn vision. Um, in other words, had become a little bit more surreal, strange, perverted, if you like, and nasty. And so when he came back, he came back with more licensed, perhaps, to develop his ideas. The climate had changed, so he was able to, to be a little bit more even more Greg Dark than he had been in, in the eighties. I, 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 when I when I watch some of those movies, I'm just I marvel at the expanse of his ideas. And I, I once said to Greg, you know, were you afraid of running out of ideas? You know, how can I shock people another time? How can I present this uh, this this coupling in another way that is going to be interesting? And he, he you know he laughed and said, my problem was turning off the weird ideas. <laughs> it, it, it was it was like drinking uh, out of a fire hydrant. That was my only problem. So this is this is a creative. A guy in, in this in this sphere, who uh, who yeah, if you if you're interested, that second batch of films that he made in the in the nineties uh, are considerably weirder than than what I think New, New Wave Hookers is. The Gregory Dark movie that I really like actually is from the same year as um, New Wave Hookers. I don't know if I I think I like it about equally as much as I like New Wave Hookers, even though it looks a lot cheaper. It's shot on video. It's called um, Black Bun Busters. <laughs> Have you seen that one? <laughs> I wonder what that's about. um, jack baker stars in it and he plays um a therapist named uh, ib brown and he's you know has the uh, you know the uh, elbow patches on his tweed jacket and he holds little therapy sessions for for people about how to get more involved with anal sex and uh and uh the best parts for me is when he does these very obviously improvised uh little little raps and he's like, uh, I can't, I'm not even going to try to do it, but <laughs> they're really funny. <laughs> so let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. 
And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertreestories.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. All right, we are back, and we are talking about New Wave Hookers, you know, and of all the movies we've discussed this month, Little Orphan Dusty had one sequel. This movie has part one through seven, plus a remake, NEU Wave Hookers. I know that I've seen these, especially because uh, I like Michael Nin a lot, so I know for sure I tracked that down and watched it, but none of them are as memorable to me as this first one. I honestly have no memory of any of these other parts of this. I don't know if you guys have, have checked out the uh, the whole collection of New Wave Hookers or not. I have not. <laughs> I mean, I have, because uh, that's just the way that I roll, unfortunately. <laughs> but Greg's own favorite films are actually uh, New Wave Hookers 2, and which he views as a superior uh, film, as well as Devil and Miss Jones parts three and four. Um, he likes New Wave Hookers. In fact, he, he recognizes that he probably will be always remembered for that, uh, uh, for New Wave Hookers above all else. And he's okay with that. But he thinks New Wave Hookers 2 is actually a superior product. My feeling is that there weren't so much sequels as almost a franchise, um, you know, that got passed around as it was 
you know, branding golds to be able to announce the new film. They bore little resemblance to the original ones. Um, and they, as usual with sequels or franchises, they uh, have a, a, a diminishing return. But I would check out New Wave Hookers too if you're interested in deeping, digging deeper. I mentioned Michael Nen, and I like that. Uh, I think, I can't remember if it's five and six or six and seven, um, that Anthony Lovett, who wrote uh, Shock, uh, is also, I think he directed, and he, one of them, I think seven he wrote, and then six, I think he co-wrote with Ginger Lynn. And so I like that Ginger Lynn is in there. It seems like Jack Baker continued to be in some of these. I want to say Jamie Gillis uh, was involved with at least one of them doing kind of an opening, opening narration. So there are some tenuous ties to the original, which is kind of nice. And yeah, like you said, Greg ends up doing, what was it? Two, three and four at least. So yeah, it was. And then I like the idea of doing a remake with uh, the NEU wave hookers Ian Mackay, uh, not the uh, guy from minor threat, but um, I think his name is a, a tribute to Ian Mackay's name. I did see that one. I like, I liked that one actually. The girls look so different. And I, I know, obviously, it's 2006. Women just look different in 2006 than they did in 1985. But it's just so strange. I'm just like, wow, I, I feel really old watching this movie. It's from a different era and for a different audience, I think. I totally think you're right. But it, it's interesting, though, to see like the way that the girls look. And it feels more almost like Suicide Girls-ish. That's exactly what I thought. You can argue that Greg was the godfather of alt porn, of which, you know, Suicide Girls was, was I guess, was, was part of the tradition. And a lot of the tropes that, that he introduced to, the, to, to films were, uh, you know, were continued in that way. So I would think that most of the folks that are listening to this would know why we keep skirting around Tracy Lords, why she was removed from the film. But just to be totally honest, and luckily I've got Mr. Uh, Once Upon a Time in the Valley here on this podcast. So please, I would love, uh, Ashley, if you can kind of tell the story a little bit of Tracy Lords and why now if you go and buy this from – the United States, and I think uh, maybe somewhere in Europe you might be able to get the original. I would not advise anyone to import uh, what is now branded child pornography, but if you buy the one that's available here in the U.S., why you won't see Tracy Lords in it? Yeah, I don't know how many films you've covered on the projection booth that are actually technically illegal in their released form. Um, which New Wave Hookers is, uh, I'm afraid. And the reason is that the climactic scene featuring Tracy Lords uh, was revealed to have been filmed when she was uh, underage, uh, 16, 17, to be clear. Yes, the film was re-released uh, with Tracy's scene cut out. Most of her films weren't. Uh, most of her films were just trashed and canned. This was this was an exception. This this uh, this film was so successful that they wanted to eke more profits out of it, so they re-released it with with Tracy's scene cut out. And it, it's it's notable because you know Tracy Lords was the greatest porn star in an era when there really weren't many great porn films. Um, the business was still struggling with the move to video. And so Tracy was nationally famous for being in porn without most people actually knowing or being able to name what film she'd been in. You know, unlike Marilyn Chambers, for example, or Linda Lovelace, people could, could put, put uh, points towards Behind the Green Door or, or Deep Throat. The exception is, of course, New Wave Hookers, which was a genuine hit. I mean, this, this was big, just to talk numbers for a moment. 
it was had a theatrical release. You know, had a world premiere at uh, the Los Angeles Pussycat Theatre in 1985, and then had a big opening in New York as well. Estimated to have sold over 40,000 units on video within the first year, and that's at 40 dollars a pop, um, which is well over a million dollars in 40 years ago prices. So we're talking about a porn film making, I don't know, $5 million today. Can you imagine a porn mil, uh, film grossing that today? So this was this was a genuine sensation. And Tracy became a genuine sensation as the, uh, as the, the main character in it. About a year after the film came out, um, somebody um, informed the, uh, the the cops and Tracy was taken into custody. She, she had just turned in eight, 18. Uh, she'd actually filmed one uh, adult film after her 18th birthday, which coincidentally was the only film, uh, which, was, which was a film that was owned by her. So her arrest and the revelation that uh, she was had been underage for most of her career automatically made her entire film catalogue uh, illegal uh, and anybody who owned it uh, had to had to trash it immediately or face uh, federal consequences except for Tracy I Love You which was a film she shot in in, in France um, which was legal so you can imagine with that kind of scenario there, there's a lot of conspiracy theories going around uh, did was it Tracy who made the call uh, to bust herself and make all of her back catalogue illegal was it the industry that found out about it and 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 try to punish her was it the uh perhaps members of her family her mother for example is shown in court depositions to have known that tracy was making these films a good year or two before the uh before tracy was busted so there's a lot of conspiracy theories so we thought it would be a good idea to actually do a, a multi-part podcast on this um, and actually interview as many people as we could get hold of which came out last year called uh, once upon a time in the valley and we tried to tell the story in a Rashomon way, starting with Tracy's version of events, uh, which she's told many times, including in an autobiography and in many other interviews with Larry King, Oprah, and the usual suspects. And then we covered the porn industry version, speaking to people who had worked with her, who known her in detail for the two or three years which she'd worked in the industry, fellow actors, directors, journalists, and so on. Our feeling was that the, the the truth was actually more exciting. In other words, neither version was entirely reliable. Um, but we felt that Tracy was actually a film noir heroine, almost a proto-feminist who'd managed to twist a male-dominated industry to her purposes. Now, you can love her or loathe her for doing that. You have to sit back and recognize that, you know, for a girl who was underage to do that, was pretty remarkable. Now, Tracy claims that she was coerced and, and drugged and that this was the victim of abuse. And you, uh, as, as, as a victim, we absolutely have to, we have to listen to that and believe that. But the fact is that what she managed to do, whether she was uh, an active party to that or being used, did have a huge impact on the industry. I still speak to people today who have passionate feelings uh, about her. You know, very strong thoughts about, you know, she was the worst thing that ever happened to the industry or my God, did she, did she shake things up? And can you believe it? She was just a young girl. How do you do that to an industry that is allegedly mob run and managed by, by middle-aged men? 
Uh, and yet she did that. So it's, it, it is a good story. I, I enjoyed doing the podcast. We spoke to Ginger Lynn and, and, and other people that we've spoken about today and hopefully managed to present a balanced, uh, a balanced view. But you do have to listen to it all first. That There was, I think, some trepidation that we were slut-shaming or victim-shaming at the beginning when we painted one side of the story. But as I say, it was a Rashomon version that tried to cover all bases and tried to be fair-minded. And my admiration for Tracy remains undimmed. I have been an admirer of her since I saw this movie, right through to her her present day incarnation, which is you know a reasonable sized star of uh, of mainstream movies. Um, so, uh, yeah, fascinating story. It's funny, Tracy. I love you. Of course, was the only Tracy Lord's film that I was well able to rent, and when I watched it, I was just like, "Wow, uh, what's the big deal?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's ironic that, that the one film that you're legally allowed to watch is is probably you know the least distinguished out of anything that she did. Incidentally, you know when she was launching her production company, which she did when she was 17. In other words, she made two two films as an underage star for her own production company before making a third and final film when she was of age. She actually did a lot of publicity around that, as you can imagine, setting up this new venture, um, and was asked about New Wave hookers quite a bit. Uh, I have one quote from her. She said, it was the filthiest thing that I've ever done. I couldn't stand it. When I saw it in its final form, I had to walk out in the middle. Her, her, her argument at that stage wasn't that, that it was something that she didn't like taking part in. Uh, it was more that she felt that it wasn't what porn was meant to look like. She went on to say, you know, you need to get beautiful women, good sex, and a good storyline all together. And sometimes men seem to find that impossible to do. Well, of course, in, in, in the case of Rick Dark, that's precisely what he didn't want to do. He didn't want to have a good storyline wrapping everything together. So that was that was a very deliberate step, uh, something that Tracy, I don't think, uh, appreciated when she uh, when she was giving these interviews. And then you actually even worked on Tracy, I Love You? Yes. Well, I, I worked on it. I was actually... Uh, in front of the camera talent, of course. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, was, a, it was a very uh, minor role as a translator because I was a language student at the time uh, during my year in France, which is what you had to do if you're a language student. So uh, I can't say that I got close to any of the action, but uh, did see Tracy and her boyfriend at the time. And uh, it was I did that on, on a few film sets, uh, which made it surprising when I turned up and found out this was an X-rated film. And with hindsight, uh, it was very exciting to me. It's pretty funny hearing Ginger, who has nothing good to say about Tracy and all of that uh, podcast series. I think it's very ironic that she ends up now being the face of New Wave Hookers, that she is the person on the poster that you can see or the, the video box cover. Yes, yes, she she is now the, the the lead, which probably is is fair given her contribution to the film, even even in the form with that includes Tracy. I think for me, uh, Ginger's the standout uh, lead in that film. Anyway, speaking to Christy Canyon, who was another of the big stars at the time, Christy, you know, liked Tracy. Um, you know, had a sneaking admiration for what she did, but nevertheless faced the the, the issue that. A lot of her films were taken off the market overnight. This was, you know, at a time when, you know, you would, for the first time, female performers were trying to build a personal brand because it helped them get 
perhaps mainstream work, perhaps dancing work, which was extremely lucrative, or just perhaps more porn work. And, you know, when you get a large volume of your, your, your work that you've done over the previous two or three years taken off the market overnight, it does take away your, your brand. So even though Christy was positive about Tracy, she, you know, it, she took a hit, as did, uh, did many other people. With New Wave Hookers, you said that it was re-edited. Obviously, we have watched it. We're talking about it right now. Did any of the other films get re-edited, or is just this the sole exception? Are they all just gone from all marketplaces now? That's a good point. Uh, I can't think of, of of many instances that did get re-edited formally at the time without Tracy's scenes. Uh, in some ways, New Wave Hookers lent itself to being re-edited in that way because it was more of a, a loop carrier if you like so you could take out tracy's scene without it impacting the plot and the others had some semblance of uh of a storyline which uh, given that tracy was the star kind of fell apart if you had to take her dialogue and sex scenes out of uh, I, I can't think of any examples can you robin i'm sure there were some um i just can't think of what they were um I'm, but i'm positive there was at least two or three of them Tracy's scene is, is with a guy called Rick Cassidy, who is kind of a legend of the really early part of, of, of the industry. So for me, it's always been fascinating that you have this new hot star who'd just been in, in Penthouse, Tracy, who was obviously making one of our first films. And Rick Cassidy, who had been a cheesecake model for photographers like, like Pat Rocco back in the late 60s, and then had moved into adult films in the early 70s, made eight millimeter loops, gay films, straight films, was a frequent performer until the mid 1970s. You know, that might not seem a lot by today's standards, sort of 14, 15 years after um, Rick made his debut, he was acting with Tracy. But 14 years in the adult industry over that period of time is like a century. You know, there was no industry per se in 1970. By 1984, it was an above board um, uh, industry and you could get your tapes in Blockbuster. So this for me was it was, it was an interesting point where you had Rick and Tracy um, in a scene together, uh, two different generations. I actually managed to speak to Rick uh, before he died. I think he died about sort of five, six years ago. He spoke about the shock about finding that Tracy was underage um, when the story blew up. He, he was approaching an age where he was thinking of retirement anyway. He was, um, his performances were a lot less sporadic, but he it put the fear of God into him. He was really uh, concerned that in some way this would implicate him. Uh, in some ways, he would become a target from, for, for law enforcement. Uh, it precipitated his, his sort of... Um, uh, retreat into anonymity um and uh, he was he was still worried about implications about that even when i spoke to him sort of 10 years or so ago yeah he didn't do a whole lot of more movies after this one that's right interesting. yeah largely because of that i think and i can't remember if i was talking to one of you guys or somebody else but there's also the irony of you know we talked about jack baker and how jack baker's going from legitimate stuff into porn while tracy is struggling to get from porn into legitimate stuff and it's just this weird crossroads. That is an interesting dichotomy. <laughs> I think Robin mentioned that the film was uh, nominated for a bunch of awards, which it was. It won four at the AFAA, the Adult Film Association of America Awards. Uh, there were there were kind of marginal awards: best musical score, best song, best trailer. Uh, it did win for best erotic scene, though, um, and it won one award at the AVN, I think, for best packaging for a feature film. And this kind of shows, I think, that, that the the industry wanted. To, to to give it some recognition, but they didn't quite know how to handle it. And the adult film industry is 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 uh, a masters 
at recognizing a commercial wrinkle that they can take advantage of and make money from, even if they don't quite get it. And, and I think that, that kind of schizophrenic selection of awards kind of shows they didn't quite know what to do with New Way Focus, but they knew it was something, it was a force to be reckoned with. They knew it was something that they had to, to respect. Um, so it, it, it was given a bunch of awards. And that kind of changed within 10, 15 years. By 2001, Adult Video News had placed its 17th on its list of 101 greatest adult films of all time. So, you know, from, from being a film that had kind of left people with a head scratching uh, within 15 years, people recognized it for what it was. It was not inducted into the XRCO Hall of Fame. And even now, Greg feels that despite his career directing music videos for Britney Spears or Snoop Dogg or whatever, he still thinks that on his tombstone, it will say, uh, Greg Dark, director of New Wave Hookers. And he's okay with that. It's ironic that it won for best trailer because as of us recording, I have yet to find a trailer for this movie. And I don't know if it was, well, Tracy's in it, so just kill the whole thing. But I'm going to have to make my own trailer audio for this one, which will be easy because there's so many great lines. But it's just like, God damn it. I, it's so much easier when they're and especially to see great trailers from the adult era. The the trailer for Little Orphan Dusty was almost better than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Great educators throughout the world have been forced to streamline our dictionaries and encyclopedias because of the demands of modern slang. Selected to perform this Herculean task of rewriting these ponderous volumes of knowledge is Professor Bertram Potts, who knows nothing about the subject of slang. This is research, isn't it? Yes. Certainly. Who would that guy learn so much from watching an apple drop? Isaac Newton. The law of gravity. Yeah, that's him. And I want you to look at me as another apple, Professor Potts. Just another apple. Yeah, that's perfect. What are you doing? I want to show you what yum yum is. Here's yum. Here's the other yum. And here's Yum Yum. That's right. Even though it sounds like it could be a porn title, we are kicking off a month of screwball films with a discussion of Howard Hawks's Ball of Fire. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Ashley and Robin. So, Ashley, what is happening with you, sir? Well, you can still hear uh, Once Upon a Time in the Valley, the podcast about Tracy, uh, still available. 
the Rialto Report uh, continues to put new podcasts or articles out uh, every Sunday afternoon. And of course, The Deuce, which I mentioned earlier on, is still available on streaming services. Something more recent that uh, we did was uh, got involved in a Netflix series called Times, uh, Crime Scene Times Square, which was uh, about a serial killer operating uh, on the margins of the sex industry uh, in, in Times Square, which uh, is an interesting story. And of course, we have a book out uh, about John Amero the uh, legendary sexploitation and hardcore film director, uh, which came out as well, as well as a few film and television projects that we're filming at the moment. And Robin, what's happening in the Great White North? Uh, well, after 25 years, um, it's the 25-year anniversary of Cinema Sewer, which is my zine and book series, uh, all about uh, cult films. Uh, so that's coming to a close with the eighth volume of the book series from Fab Press, and that's going to be coming out uh, very soon. And uh, that'll be available from uh, fabpress.com and from my my web store, which is uh, cinemasewer.storenv.com. And uh, so you can find me on Facebook. And I have a new series, which I've started, which is um, kind of a sister publication to Cinema Sewer, which is um, all about the history of uh, underground and uh, alternative comic books. And that's called uh, Gutter Hunter. And that's available. Uh, the first issue is a uh, hundred pages and that's also available for my web store. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening to inquire about advertising on the projection booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks, especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Despite rumbling inside me Cause of love I lost in the alley She appeared and she disappeared Into a cloud of graffiti Graffiti She electrified me Radioactive hair stuck in the sky a plastic bag, a gun inside Green cowboy boots and a black straight leg She electrified me She electrified me She electrified me Shoulders around so free She even danced on the ground with me